I just want to say welcome to DBC. My name is Chad. If we've never met officially, my name's Chad. I have the opportunity of being the lead pastor here. And uh, I just want to say thanks for choosing DBC. Um, I also want to say this before I kind of get into, into, uh, into the text this morning. I just want to say thank you for all of you who prayed for uh, Warriors Weekend. We had Warriors Weekend Friday and then uh, most of the day Saturday. And I just want to say thank you from my heart to yours. If you were praying, I was, I was doing some updates through social media, and I know that probably prompted you to pray some because I was letting you know when the sessions were. And I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for investing in our men and that your, your prayers were powerful and effective, as it says in James 5. And, and they did what they were supposed to do, and we had incredible fellowship, and the teaching um, was, was exactly what we needed. The worship was pure, and uh, we had just had just a remarkable time together. But I want to tell you, the journey for Warriors Weekend actually didn't start here in, in this place. My heart, my, my heart of hearts is to see men grow and be the men of God that they're supposed to be. I mean, at the core of me and my faith story, at the core of that place in me, in my soul, is for me to help men to be who, who they're supposed to be biblically and who God would want them to be in the workplace, in the home place, and in, then in the place of the church. That is so woven into my story that that's what I want to talk about. That's what I study. That's my fun reading. That's my challenging reading. I, I honestly, I view much of society, politically, family structure, church structure, I view much of my life and other people's lives through the lens of the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of men in the home. That's just my heart. And it's been that way since God changed me and shaped me and brought some attention to my life that I was doing things wrong. So out of that brokenness, God continually just fuels the fire to maybe help other people to get out of the place that I once was. But part of, of that experience for me is I've, I've wanted to and I've longed to have a men's weekend like Warrior Weekend. I've longed to have that for years, and I've been here, we've been here for about six years, coming up into six years, and the whole time that I uh, have been here and leading this church and you as a people, I have longed to have a Warrior Weekend. Now, just give you a little side note, I'm the type of person, type A personality, if I think something needs to happen, I'm the type of person, I'll be throwing shoulders, knees, I'll be working, I'll be trying to make sure it, it, it happens. I'm the, I'm the strategy guy, I'm the list maker, I'm the, okay, we've got to have this done, let's develop a plan, how can you help me do that? I see this person, wow, they'd be effective in this role, and this role, I, and that's just, that's just woven into me, that's just who I am. But it is incredibly difficult to have a burden so deep. To, to be able to have a warrior weekend for the course of almost six years and it not to happen. It, when my tendency is to make it happen. But I knew that in the midst of, of these six years of preparation, approximately, I knew that, that I wasn't ready as a leader. I knew that you weren't ready as a church. And I knew the people that you would influence weren't ready to receive what it is that God was doing in you. I knew that, but it is incredibly hard to wait. And in times like that in life, and maybe that's not your story, but your story would be something like this. Maybe the time that God said for you to wait, to pause, to just wait on him, to be patient, 
Maybe it was a time in your life where you decided to rush in. And in that moment, when you rushed in, you pushed God out. In that moment, when you rushed in and you barreled in to take care of it yourself and you didn't wait for for that check to come in and you bought those things on credit and now you're stuck with that looming debt that you can't pay and now that debt is compounding and now the interest just keeps coming through and now you have another emergency, but you've got no emergency fund. So now you find another emergency. Now you're just incurring more and more and more debt because you decided as I've decided that I'm just going to rush in. But in the, in the midst of that, what you probably didn't think of is if I rush in and take care of this myself, I wonder if I'm pushing God out. See, oftentimes it, the story is told like this in the context of relationship. It's told in the context of, uh, of the person who you used to live with, and now they're your ex-husband, wife, my ex-whatever. And now that person has become a reminder of the time that you rushed in and you settled for less than God's best. And now you feel the sting of regret. And maybe even Satan has just kind of put some guilt, put some shame on top of that. There's grace for that. But what that is a reminder of is in the times in life when we decide to just barrel in and just take care of it ourselves, and we just rush in Sometimes when we decide to rush in, what we're in essence doing is we're just pushing God out because he has this place. He has that person. He has that position. He has that freedom. He has that relationship. He has that job. He has that that neighbor that he wants you to influence. He has that home. He has that car. He has that future. But if we just decide to just barrel in and rush in and do it ourselves, I have to just remind you, you rush in, you might be pushing him out. This even happens with parents. I'm not picking on you moms, but, but this is where it really, really rears itself. You see, when, when a child is two and they all spit up on themselves, you're a good mom. So you go in and what do you do? What do you do, moms? You, you wipe them off and you pat them on the back. You do whatever you have to do, see if there's something wrong with them. That's what you do. And when they're two, when you rush in to take care of them and you wipe their mouth or they mess themselves, do whatever it is that that happens. And and when they're two and they do those things and you rush in as a mom or as a dad, that's a good thing, right? And you rush in and you take care of them and that's awesome. But when they're 20 or they're 25 or they're 30 and mama, you light up the helicopter and you land and your child has made a mess of themselves. They made a mess of their marriage. They made a mess of their kids. They made a, they've just made a mess of life. If you decide that you're just going to rush in and you're just going to clean up that mess, you can be pushing God out. Because in that moment, there's something they're supposed to learn about God and learn from God and learn that they're supposed to be pursuing God and trusting God. And at the same time, you are also and there's times in our life, and, and it's not always clearly defined like I just defined them, those examples, but there are times in our life where we have to stop and realize, okay, if I rush in, am I going to push God out? I'm so glad in the text this morning in Joshua 5, starting in verse 13, that they get this right. There's so many examples in the Bible when they get it wrong, 
and we have to learn in reverse order, but we get to learn how they do it right this time. And, and Joshua, going up to Joshua 5, starting in verse 13, some amazing things that happened for Joshua. And Joshua, the first couple chapters of Joshua was like character development time for him, but it was done publicly. So, so God would give them a stern word, or God gave him rather a stern word at the beginning. And he actually used other people too in chapter one to be strong and courageous. For him, that he couldn't just rely upon his past and his strengths. He had to rely upon the Lord like he had never done before. And, and he'd received some promises along the way. And, and then there was a time where they, all of that happened. And Joshua, his character was being developed and he was doing the right thing. And he, and he was leading and people were following and everything was great. And they were about to have this, this great celebration and party. And, and then they go up to this great river that's at flood stage and they scratch their head. And they're like, well, how in the world are we going to get through this? And they're reminded they could not get through it themselves. It took a miracle of God, and that's exactly what God did, that he held back the, the flood of this. This isn't a metaphor for something else. This is literal. This actually happened. These places can be verified now, even uh, historically and archaeologically. And, and so God held back the water, and they passed over on dry ground, and we learned last week that they, that they set up these monuments of stones, the 12 stones. And I said, and you may disagree, that I think there were actually two sets of 12 stones, one right in the middle of the river. And, and that scripture is, it's, it's not ambiguous, but sometimes the, the NIV, it just makes it a little unclear, but the other translations make it more clear, I believe. So, so there, maybe there's two monuments, one inside the river and one right on the other side. And the other side of the river was the promised land. That, that was the one that they had talked about and longed to have for generations. So now them as a people, they're, they're in the promised land, but they, they were, had just gotten on the other side of the river. They had built the monument, and now they're waiting to see what God was going to do. And their explanation for everything up to this point was only God. So now they, coming into verse 13, God had required that they would go through just a little surgery. You can read that if you're interesting at the beginning, uh, if you're interested in that, at the beginning of chapter 5, just a little surgery so they would be physically and spiritually ready um, for what it was that God was going to have them do. And then we see some remarkable things in starting in verse 13, chapter 5. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Verse 14, neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Draw some things from this text. And I think this, the beginning of this really sets the, the, the mode for what happens starting in chapter 6. Because in this moment, you see that, that Joshua goes up to this man, as, as it's said in the scriptures, and he goes up before this man and he says, are, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And it's a logical question. If you were to see someone and they were warring people, 
But if, if, they were to, if you were to see someone in that situation and you were a warring person and you saw somebody with a drawn sword, you'd ask the same question. But like, all right, sh- should, I, should I get the fellows here? Should, are we about to go battle or what? I, I got to be prepared for this. Are you our enemy? Because if not, it's going to be full on right now. But the response in verse 14 is the tell of all of it. And the response is neither. And what God, and I believe this is, this is a theophany. We could, we could disagree on this. I believe this is a theophany. I believe this is Jesus in the flesh on earth. And I believe this appearance is not an angel. And I believe that Joshua did not believe it was an angel. I believe he thought it also was God in the flesh. And I'll tell you why. Because Joshua's response, he falls flat and worships. He falls flat and worships. Joshua knew that only God is to be worshipped. That was mapped out very clearly in Exodus 20 and specifically Exodus 20. And it was mapped out also in the conduct uh, of, of the believers in that time in Deuteronomy 5 through 8. That Joshua would have known this. Only the Lord is to be worshipped. You don't worship angels. Let me just remind you of something. We don't worship angels. We don't, we don't pray to angels. We don't. We don't have to. We should not. They are not worthy of our worship. Only God is worthy of our worship. Joshua knew this. His response was falling flat on his face in reverence to God. He was worshiping Jesus Christ. He was worshiping God. His holiness, the the response that Joshua gave is because he knew that the holiness uh, was a manifestation of God. And we see this all throughout the scriptures that God is a holy God and he demands our worship. He, he needs our worship. He longs to have our worship. He deserves our worship. He would also be well in tune with Exodus fifteen thirteen, And this text says that the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. That the Lord is, he is a warrior. This would not be some foreign concept of of seeing God with a sword. This, it would have been just woven into their faith story that the Lord is a warrior. And we would would see even in the weeks to come throughout Joshua, we're going to see that this is tested over and over and over because God defeats his enemies. The people do not defeat the enemies. God defeats the enemies. The Lord is a warrior. This is also consistent with Exodus 3 and the events that happened with Joshua, with, with Moses, which Joshua followed Moses and Joshua followed Moses's leadership. So then after Moses died, Joshua was now the guy. He was in charge. And in Exodus 3, verse 5, this is what the Lord told to Moses at the burning bush. He says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? With the text I just read. Sounds very familiar. With my whole heart, I believe that Joshua knew that that this is God. This is not an angel. That this is God. And his response in the presence of Almighty God is falling down in worship to him. And the response in verse 14 tells everything. And the response in verse 14 tells us something. That means that we cannot treat God passively. 
We can't treat God just like he's our homeboy. Like he's just, he's just cool. Like me and God, we're just tight. He is a holy and righteous God. He is calling us to be holy and righteous. He, he allows us to be holy and righteous through his power, not our own power. But that response in verse 14 that's elicited through our life should be that of Joshua's. When he falls down flat and he bows down in worship to Almighty God, that there's some otherness to God that he could not put his finger on, that he could not understand. But what he did is so telling because when he, he was the one that everybody else looked to, but when he bowed down, he was honoring God. And he says, now I'm operating under your authority. That you're not working, you're not just, we're not just partners in this battle. That you're in charge, God. I'm following your lead. What you say goes. Another thing that I think that you see from this text, and it's something that, that the American church, our church, Dublin Bible Church, we need this. And you see this right in the midst of this. We, we live in the age of grace. And oftentimes we confuse grace with being able to do whatever it is that we want to do. And then we justify it by saying we're under grace. So we go out and sin and we live our life and we do whatever it is that we want to do. And then we back it up passively and say, you know what, I'm under grace. And we use that as an excuse when somebody holds us accountable, believer to believer, and then someone holds us accountable and you say, no, no, I'm under grace. No, what you're saying to them is now I have an excuse. And that's not grace. Never, never, never overestimate God's grace while underestimating God's holiness. Never. Never overestimate God's grace. And so puff yourself up while underestimating his holiness because God is a God of grace, but he is a holy and righteous and at times wrathful and he is a God of judgment and he is a God of war. And he's a God of love. And he's a God of compassion and he's a God of mercy. But he is all of those things equally. He is not the God that you want him to be. He is all of those things at all times. So what we learn from this, what's being said to us is never overestimate God's grace while underestimating his holiness. Thus we take advantage of his grace and undermining his holiness. See, our view of God tells us of the authority that we're willing to live under. Our view of God tells us of the authority that we're, we're, living, we're willing to live under. There's a book that was written. I've not read this book, but um, there, there's some things in it, I think, that are so, so valuable. Um, and it, the book is called Your God is Too Small. And what the author says is in this book, he says, oftentimes what we'll do is we kind of rally around these certain aspects of God. And that's it. We just kind of rally around those aspects and that's it. The first one is we rally around the aspect that God is a moral policeman, that God's role in the earth today is to be the moral police of everyone on the earth. Now, God created morality. That's part of God's grace. That's part of God's grace for all of humanity, not just Christians. But in this, what we mistake is this, that if, if God has this, 
this moral police mentality, we start to think that we are then the policemen then forcing that morality upon other people. While at the same time, we're unwilling to live under the morality that we're trying to impose. It's just a, a complete backward cycle. God is not simply a moral policeman who's trying to be the moral police of, of social media, and he's just allowed you to be his police officer in that setting. He's not the moral policeman who says, hey, here's what we're going to do. We need to elect a, a, a oh, God's not saying, all we need is just the right president so he can be the moral policeman for the world. God says, no, 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 I got morality taken care of. But if we simply view God, just a minimalistic view of God, that he is a moral policeman, that's all we'll see. Another kind of a, a false view is, is just this meek and mild Jesus, the, the meek and mild portrayal of Jesus. That, that Jesus, we start to think that Jesus is passive because we're passive. Or, or Jesus, we start to think that Jesus is passive because we want him to be passive. He's not meek and mild. He is, he is a warrior. He, he is a loving God, but he's also a wrathful God. And the striking reality this morning, please receive this. The striking reality is this. While he is a loving God, he is also, at the same time, people who would not willingly submit their lives to him, he is also condemning those people to an eternal separation from him. It is a literal place called hell. It's a literal place for eternity. He's not some meek and mild person as we portray him to be. He is, he is loving, but you want to receive that love. And if you push away from that love, he, then you're also going to see another attribute that is equal. And he is the righteous ruler and he is a just judge. And his judge or his judgment is harsh to those who do not receive his love. And there's no other way around it. We also start to think, and this is where I think guilt and shame come in. We start to think that because God has absolute perfection, we have to have absolute perfection. Because we know that God is perfect, therefore we must be perfect which is not true. God is not looking for your perfection. He's looking for your participation. He's not looking for your perfection because if he were looking for perfection with us as, as humans, he, he would look upon the earth and say, well, I, man, I guess I, I don't know what we're going to do now. And when he looked upon the earth and he saw that, it was, that we were all a fallen people, he did what, what was necessary to do. And he sent the perfect one, the sinless one, to die on the cross for our sins. Not for our perfection, but for our participation in our faith journey. That we would just live under submission to God. That we would honor his authority. That we would, that we would maybe go through and do, take the same response that Joshua did. That we would fall flat before God and say, God, you are holy and righteous and loving. And I recognize that I, I need to submit to your authority. The amazing thing is this. If we start from that place, then we're we're less likely to rush in and then push him out. If we start 
with, uh, I'm a person who operates under the authority of God and the word of God because he's a loving God, because he's pursuing me and I want to respond to that pursuit. When we do that, we're less likely to rush in, to barge in and take care of it ourselves and push God out. Verse 1, chapter 6 says this, Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out or came in. The people of Jericho, and it was kind of a city-state. It was just a, it was a city with walls all the way around it. And that, w- that would have been Jericho. And the people were not leaving, and they were not coming back. They were fearful because the people were surrounding the city, and the people they had no idea what was about to happen, but they did not leave. Verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests. Now, there's going to be the word seven several times in this text. If you're a person who underlines, maybe you want to underline all the references to seven. He says, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priest blowing the trumpets. When you hear them, sound a long blast on the trumpets. Have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse. The people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of them. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets. And the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. Verse 9. The armed guard marched ahead of the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. At this time, the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the people returned to camp, and they spent the night there. You see, the setting... It's prime for God to do a miracle. The, the setting is prime, but Joshua was not willing to rush in. He, could have, he was a military commander. He could have had a, a battle plan to take the city, whether by ladders, and, and say, we're just going to storm the walls, and we're just going to take it. We'll take some casualties, but we'll take the wall from the inside out. But he didn't. He could have said, we're going to starve out this city, and we're just going to make sure they get no provisions of food and water, and eventually they're going to come out, and we're going to take the city. But he didn't. Because if he would have rushed in, he would have been pushing God out. So he waited. God gave them the plan. God would give them deliverance. God would give them the instructions. Many references to the word seven. And the number seven in the scripture, it means completion, wholeness, perfection. 
You see, the, the reason why they had to go around the, the seven days and the seven time and on the seven time and the seven day with the seven trumpets and all the reference to seven is because God was setting up the perfect time, the perfect situation where God was going to do what only God could do. And because Joshua decided early, I'm not going to rush in and push God out. They did not suffer a single casualty. Because as this story is played out, they do what God tells them to do. They go in and eventually circle it. They take the city. And they're given this stern warning that there were certain things that were set apart for the Lord that they ought not to do anything with. That they were set aside for the Lord's service. Whatever the Lord wanted, they were to set aside. And they were given these stern instructions. And unfortunately, they didn't follow these instructions. And we're going to see how that plays out next week. But as, as they're given the rest of the instructions on how to take the city and that the city eventually would fall. But it didn't fall on lap number one. It didn't fall on lap number three. It didn't fall on lap number five. They had to wait for the perfect amount of times around and the perfect opportunity for God to do what he was, what only God could do. But Joshua, as the leader, maybe you as the person that you have to commit today, that I'm not just gonna barrel into the situation. I'm not just gonna rush into the situation or else I might push God out. I'm not just going to rush in and, and I'm not just going to go to the lawyer to, to file those papers to just dissolve this marriage and it's just going to be over because maybe that's, your, that's just you wanting to rush in and you're about to push God out. Maybe for you, there's, there's a family member that's just, oh, and it's just, it's hard. And, and yet you, you find yourself less and less and less willing to talk to them. And maybe for you, you're only on lap number five. But maybe you need to persevere a little bit longer. Maybe you need to be patient a little bit longer. You don't just need to rush in and just end it all. Maybe you just need to wait for that number seven, that, that perfect time that God has ordained when God is going to take care and mend that relationship. For you parents, maybe for you, you, you just need to, to put the helicopter back on the pad don't fire it up. Maybe you just need to sit and rely upon God and just trust that lap number seven is coming for your child when they're going to come back home, when they're going to come to their senses. But the way you do that, the way that I do this, is we decide ahead of time, I'm not just going to rush in. Because if I rush in, I might push God out. And then I'm going to have a bigger mess than what I started with. But we only do that when we operate under the authority of God. And that's what Joshua did so well here. He submitted himself to the authority of God when he bowed down in reverence. And when, when Jesus gave the reply, neither, he was saying, you can't treat me passively you're either going to glorify me now or you're not going to glorify me now. You're either going to worship me now or you're not going to worship me now. But there's no middle ground. Let me just ask you this question. Has there ever been a time 
where you have given your life to Jesus Christ? Has there been a, a moment, I'm not just talking about where I was in, in Sunday school, you know, you, you did all that. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, salvation by, by group. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, has there ever been a time in your life where you said, I, on this day, committed my life to Jesus Christ? For many of you, I believe the answer is yes. And you'd be able to give me this incredible story and the surrounding thing and what happened and what God did on that day and what he's been doing ever since. But I also believe there's other people in here who have never placed their faith in Christ. They've never placed their faith in Christ. And for you, and in verse two, it starts out in verse two and it's, uh, the, the, the dialogue starts out as C. For you, you will never be able to do what it is that God wants you to do or be who God wants you to be or to be the, the coworker that you need to be or be the mom and dad that you're supposed to be, be the son or daughter that you're supposed to be if you do not at first put your faith in Christ. Have you ever placed your faith in Christ? If you have not had a moment where you said, I, ha I have given my life to Christ, I'm going, to make it, I'm going to make it clear, but it's not simple. The reason why it's not simple is because Jesus Christ died for you. There's nothing simple about the gospel message. There's nothing simple about the message of grace. There's nothing simple about Jesus living a perfect life for approximately 33 years, having three spotless years of personal ministry, boring into a bunch of fallen people, but never judging them, always looking for the best of them. There's nothing nothing easy about it. There's nothing simple about that plan, but it's clear. Jesus Christ died to make your life make sense. He died to bear the weight of your sins to take away your guilt and your shame. That's why he did it. That's the core of the gospel message. That's a very clear message. But that's a message that you have to accept. You have to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. There's no magic words. There's the condition of your heart. There's a very simple message. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the scripture is very clear in Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says that you will be saved. That's clear. I don't know if you've done that or not. But I want you to. Whoever invited you wants you to. Here's what I want us to do. I, I don't do this often, but I believe I need to do it right now. I, I would like for us all to stand, please. And if we could, I realize if, if you're not a church person, this is kind of weird for you. And even for church people, it's kind of weird. But, but I'm going to risk it because I think it's so important. I want us all, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I, I, I would just have us all just close our eyes and bow our heads, please. And I just want to ask some, some simple questions. And if I ask a question in, in, in your life, in your experience right now, the answer is yes, I want you to raise your hand. There's no one looking except me. 
I want to pray for you. If in your life right now, that you, you're prone to rush in and you know you're pushing God out, I want you to just admit that. Just confess that. Just raise your hand up high, please. Say, there's, there's times where I just, I barrel in. Thank you. You can put your hands down. You say, I just, I just barrel in and I know sometimes I push God out. Maybe for someone else that you've, you've kind of, you've lived your life thinking that you have to be perfect all the time to, to earn God's love. If that's your story, please raise your hand up high. That you've kind of lived the, just the lie of perfection. Thank you. You can put your hand down. And for you, maybe, maybe your story is, maybe you're the parent and you're like, I just cannot, I just, I can't, I just have a hard time of just sitting by and letting these things happen to my kids. I just, I feel this longing to just rush in. If that's you, just raise your hand up high, please. Thank you for your honesty. And for you, if, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, and right now you, your heart's beating a little faster, and your shoulders are probably a little heavier, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, I would ask that you raise your hand. Not to make you feel awkward, but just if you would just raise your hand. I'm the only one looking. Thank you. Father God, we just come to you on this day. We pray in, in the saving name of Jesus Christ. God, you love us. You have never been a passive God. Father God, let us, let us live in, in the reality of your grace while recognizing your love and how merciful, you're merciful every single day. And Father, we, we just pray that you would just speak into the lives and in the hearts and minds of these people who raised their hand, who were honest before you. Father God, you know all of their needs. You know everything about them. I was reminded this week that you know the condition of their very heart. Lord God, I pray that you would just meet their needs, whatever it may be. I pray that you would strengthen the weak in the way that they need strengthened. I pray that you would just meet them in their mess. And that you would strengthen parents and us as people not to just rush into a situation. Because maybe, just maybe, we might just be on lap number six, but lap number seven's coming. And when it comes, everything will be complete, everything will be perfect, and everything will be whole. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the gospel that makes men and women, boys and girls, whole. Amen. Amen.